the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Bruce Hooley Show podcast is brought to you by HemisphereCoffeeRoasters.com. Creating jobs and restoring dignity one cup at a time. Good coffee doing good. Learn more at HemisphereCoffeeRoasters.com. It is 534 on the Bruce Hooley Show. Appreciate you joining us today. Dodging those raindrops in Columbus, Ohio. We have talked a fair amount on the show about... Uh, unemployment benefits in the state of Ohio. Governor DeWine just recently rescinded the extended benefits. Uh, some states around the country continue to do that. We talk a lot about inflation and government handouts. Uh, if you have children, you're starting to get your tax credit in the form of a monthly check, $250 for every child under the age of 17. Uh, all this plays into a very odd scenario where we have an economy that is ramping back up, we have 7.9 million job openings and people apparently unwilling to take them. Our next guest can help us make sense of that. She is Megan Rose. She is a civil society fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She writes for City Journal, and she is the CEO of Better Together, a Florida-based nonprofit. Megan, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show. I think you'll bring a really valuable perspective to this uh vexing issue of why we can't get people back to work and of helping people escape poverty. Tell us about Better Together and historically what you guys have been able to do helping people get into the workforce. So Better Together started in Florida as a way of helping divert families from needing foster care. So we were working with families that were in crisis, about to lose their kids to the state. And we started our Better Families program, Better Jobs program, because we realized that 76% of the families that were about to fall apart, the root cause was financial. Um, They had lost their job or they weren't working, and small problems became really large problems to the point where children were being abused or neglected or their family was about to be torn apart. So we work with churches all across the country to host job fairs, and not just your typical job fairs, but job fairs where you remove barriers and you make it as easy as possible for people to come as they are and get connected to really great employment opportunities from a diverse group of employers, um, which has been a really interesting um, area to be in these days. I would think you would be having tremendous success after the pandemic, getting people back to work. I mean, there are openings. The jobs you're talking about are sometimes, uh, in fact, oftentimes not jobs that pay minimum wage. I'm reading on your website. It says they're jobs that pay $25 an hour. You offer people free haircuts, interview clothing, one-on-one counseling. Uh, And typically, until the pandemic, you got a great response to that, right? Numbers of people showing up, very, uh, very robust. What about after the pandemic? Yeah, so before, it was about average around 300 to 400 people per job fair, and one out of four would get hired on the spot, 60% would find jobs. 
Um, and even in the middle of the pandemic, we switched to a virtual model um, at the end of April 2020. And we had over 800 people on average attending the job fairs. And then something changed. At this date and time right now, our average is about 15 to 20 job seekers oh. at job fairs that have up to 50 employers. And like you said, jobs that are paying really well. And employers that are willing to do sign-on bonuses really invest in the people they're hiring. But where are the job seekers? What is uh, the one thing I think I could hear people saying is, well, uh, you talk about people who are in danger of losing their kids. Maybe these are people with criminal records. Employees are selective. They don't want to hire somebody with criminal record. But at Better Together, you guys have had pretty good luck getting people with a criminal record hired. Yeah, it's very great luck. Um, We've been able to get, like I said, 60% of the people who walk through the doors of our job fairs um, get employment within six weeks. And one out of four actually walk away with a job on the spot. And so we really humanize the whole job seeking process and make it really easy for people to come as they are and get the resources and support they need, even if it's mobility, haircuts, like you said, Anything they need, we're going to get rid of those barriers and help them find a job because we know there's a lot of dignity and value that comes with having a job. And that is the dangerous thing we're seeing right now is this narrative that, one, it's a financially sound decision. If you're getting paid more to stay home, they are making a financially sound decision by not going back to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other piece that's difficult is we have this narrative that if you're not making a certain dollar amount an hour, you shouldn't go to work. Um, And there's dignity in even the most unglamorous jobs. And some of the best success um, stories we have are people who started with a job and then worked their way up the chain and are now managers, or they've moved on to even better employment. You have to learn those soft skills. You have to start somewhere. And working versus not working there's so much more positive things that happen as far as a family and a person when you are working versus when you're dependent on the government. Megan Rose is our guest, and she is a civil society fellow at the Manhattan Institute. You can read her columns online at cityjournal.com, and uh, she runs Better Together, which is an initiative, uh, faith-based initiative, I believe, that helps get people into the job market. You mentioned on something here something that I think is really the uncalculated cost of the pandemic, and that is the uh, willingness to sit back, wait, have the government drop food into our mouths like we're little birds. Um, It has really killed people's incentive to get out and do jobs. I don't know if many of them are fearful of COVID or what it is, but um, you mentioned a key word there, dignity. Um, On your website, you write about structure, accountability, value, that drive that a person develops. Uh, when they have a job. And this is not just something that, you know, you learned in school or that you write about. Um, this is this has a personal impact, has had a personal impact on your life, too. I wonder if you'd mind talking about that. Yeah. So my dad um, spent some time in prison as a when I was a child. And when he was released from prison, he really struggled to find employment. But he caught a break. And that job gave my dad a structure. It kept him sober. It kept him clean. And it really helped our family heal. Um, And because of that job, my family stayed together. And I truly believe and I know, and my dad would state it, that if it wasn't for that job, he probably would have ended right back 
in the prison system or he would have struggled with alcohol and our family wouldn't have stayed together. And so I personally have seen the power of a job and what that can do for, you know, not just the adult, but the children and the family as a whole. And we see that every single day, you know, the longer that people are not working, there's a reason why crisis lines are ringing off the hook. There's a reason why mental health um, is increasing and addiction is work is good for people. And the longer that people stay unemployed and don't re-enter the workforce, the more issues we're going to face and the harder it's going to be to reintegrate families back into the workforce. Megan Rose, our guest, she's a Manhattan Institute Civil Society Fellow. So here we are in Columbus, Ohio. We have an astronomically high homicide rate. We have a juvenile crime rate that is really skyrocketing, particularly in terms of carjackings. We have a lot of people who've lost hope in crime-ridden and poverty-ridden areas of the city. We have a Democratic administration, and they're all in on, they say, helping people. What have you found that has worked that you would recommend to a mayor, to a city council, in terms of how they could really help people reinstill that value on getting a job, and as I say when I speak to kids in school, get a job and keep a job until you have a better job because it builds a track record, it builds a resume of reliability that will help you as you progress. Um, we should be encouraging work, I mean, from our words, from our policies, um, and we should also be removing barriers that make it difficult for people to find jobs, um, if it's occupational licensing or if it's just helping people who have had records be able to find a job and be able to encourage employers to hire second chances. But we should be doing everything in our power from politicians to localities to be encouraging work because it is the backbone of our society and it really does keep families together. And we've seen just through this whole thing, just what happens when people don't work and there should be a sense of urgency. Um, research shows us the longer that people are unemployed and they're not working, the more implications of family breakdown, addiction, child abuse, divorce, all those things happen. And so from policies, the leadership, I think from even a community level, from a neighbor caring about their neighbor, we need to help people re-enter the workforce, get back to just having that structured routine, getting up in the morning and showing that example of the importance of work to their children. And that's how this country is going to heal. That's how we're going to continue to just rebuild and get people to a place where they are not dependent on the government. They are healthy and they have something really to be proud of. You can read more about her work, Megan's work at bettertogetherus.org. You can find her bio, Megan Rose's bio there, Manhattan Institute as well. And I notice on your website at bettertogetherus.org, Megan, that you have 350 church partners. Uh, I don't have to tell you that I think we're in a period in America where there's a skepticism, maybe even a hostility, toward faith-based organizations getting involved, particularly with uh, Democratic mayoral administrations, Democratic city councils. What have you found that the faith community has been able to add to the equation to drive the success of Better Together? And what would you recommend uh, on a nationwide basis, not just in the state of Florida where Better Together operates, to have the success stories nationally that you have down there? We believe the church is actually an untapped resource 
um, that is uniquely fit to really help their community and help their community best. People need not only jobs, but they need community. They need relationships. They need somebody to call um, when they need support. And churches are filled with employers. They're filled with hiring managers. They're filled with people um, who have resources and skills that they can offer their community and help them. So we believe that the church is a really great way for them to help their community. We just give them a structure in order to do so. And it's not about profitizing. It's about connecting with their neighbors and helping them get connected to employment and removing all those barriers and everything, you know, those unique challenges. Like we said, haircuts, resumes, coaching, um, mobility, childcare, these job fairs, people can bring their kids and they have somebody to help them with their kids. So there's no barriers, and the church is uniquely positioned to do that, and we've seen them do it in a really unique way where it's not a sterile environment. It's an environment where people can feel welcome. They can feel encouraged and connected to employers who are willing to take a chance on them and offer them that next opportunity. You can read uh, Megan's column, Jobs Without Takers, at manhattan-institute.org. Her latest commentary, not everyone can be a TikTok star. Let's get back to work. And you can follow Better Together and its success at bettertogetherus.org. Megan Rose, I appreciate your time very much today. I applaud your work, and I wish you success as you go forward. Thank you so much. It's been a joy to be on the show. There you go. Megan Rose, and I love what she's doing, love how she's partnering with uh, other faith-based organizations, getting things done. Uh, The template's out there. Uh, I don't know if our city's interested in following it or not. Uh, I think what they're more interested in is putting out the appearance of um, advantaging people without helping them at all. We see that in the stories we've been talking about from the Columbus Dispatch. And uh, if you've ever wondered, what happens if I'm one of those unfortunate people who happens upon a protest? Uh, Will I make it out safely? Will I make it out alive? I will tell you the story of one man to whom that... uh, very scary circumstance occurred recently in central Ohio. That's next on The Bruce Hooley Show. Five fifty one, Bruce Hooley Show. You know, interesting, in our interview with our guest, Megan Rose, it didn't occur to me until I reflected on our conversation. Uh, she talked about her father being in prison. And that he then was able to secure a job with a plumbing and heating contractor. And that that kept him sober and kept him out of prison and allowed their family to reconnect and her family to heal. Notice what was missing from that equation that's so often prevalent today is the bitterness and blaming of others for sad, difficult, dire circumstances that befall someone or a family. Uh, Owning your own mistakes and mustering the self-generated pride and desire to avoid those kinds of circumstances in the future um, is the key to not letting one circumstance like that define you. So... um, And now look how that's manifested itself in that man's daughter helping thousands of people 
triumph over the kinds of circumstances that could have befallen her. She could have easily fallen into foster care. And um, and by the way, she's white. Not that it matters, but, you know, uh, I guess she's one of the rare non-evil white people <laughs> helping uh, people who are um, facing the more and the more dire circumstances, separation of the family. Now, on uh, the evening of May 31st, when uh, we had a march in downtown Columbus, a man by the name of Eldon Hawkins was driving near Broaden High, and he happened upon a street protest. This had to be something related to a police shooting at that particular time, probably somewhere around the time of Makai Bryant's uh, death. So, Mr. Hawkins, who, as I said, is 58 years old, he has cerebral palsy, uh, tried to get out of this cluster of human beings, angry people protesting Columbus police and the uh, well-executed training of the officer who saved a life. Uh, So Mr. Hawkins backed up his vehicle at low speed, not fast, and happened to strike a person on a bicycle. Uh, What then occurred? uh, What wasn't peaceful? Uh, They threw the bicycle on Mr. Hawkins' windshield. They started kicking his doors and windows. He said, it scared the life out of me. Now, there's a video of it. People can be seen jumping onto his car, kicking at, opening the doors, uh, throwing the contents out of his trunk. Uh, Mr. Hawkins tells the dispatch, there were some nice people who came and pulled me out of the car and took me to the curb. Uh, Damage to the car, $8,129. Uh, He says, it's one thing to protest, but when people start breaking windows and spray painting the F word, that's turning this beautiful city into a dive. Mr. Hawkins said that his father was a union man back in the day and that he remembers marching with his father one time in a show of solidarity for the FOP and the firefighters union during a protest at the Statehouse. Uh, He says, quote, we did not break one window and we did not spray paint foul language. Because this is our city. If troublemakers don't like it, they can leave. Well, they're not going to leave. They are going to tear it down and do what? We don't know. Seize power is probably the best answer that they could give. Uh, One of the things that city council is talking about tonight is appropriating funds to purchase bulletproof vests for our Columbus firefighters. Yes, our firefighters. Uh, We live in a city where we've allowed, encouraged, invited hopelessness in our poorest communities to escalate to the point where violence is so normal that we now have to fear our firefighters being shot when they show up to do their job. I don't know, uh, according to this uh, story uh, about the dispatch's new approach to covering crime and balancing it with the uh, happy tales of all the good things going on in neighborhoods where uh, we wouldn't want to give the impression that crime is the defining characteristic of certain neighborhoods. I, I don't know. Maybe Alan Miller's next column in the dispatch can tell us 
how many bake sales or how many, uh, you know, little kids holding hands as they walk down the street and sing Kumbaya. How many feature stories will we get on that in order to balance out the horrific necessity of equipping our firefighters with bulletproof vests to keep them from being murdered in the course of performing their sworn duties? I don't know. I just know this. I know that if anyone I loved was one of the egregiously unfortunate people, and there have been many who have been murdered in our city this year while having nothing to do with the circumstances of their death other than just being wrong place, wrong time. That was certainly the case with Mackenzie Ridley, the 17-year-old who was shot to death at a squirt gun party at a park on the east side. That was certainly the case with Olivia Kurtz, who died in her twin sister's arms at Bicentennial Park. It was certainly the case of the young woman who died driving her car to a Dollar General on the south side. But don't worry. Alan Miller is going to send his team of reporters out there to write about, you know, a, a bicycle race or something.